0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 250, Crossing the Generational Divide. We're joined this week by Buddhist teacher, Ken McLeod, for a dynamic conversation exploring some of the generational gaps that present themselves in the teacher-student relationship. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Buddhist Geeks. And this is Vincent Horn. And today I'm joined over Skype video with someone that we've had on the show before, Ken McLeod. We interviewed him a few months back. And if you're interested kind of in hearing more of his perspective, definitely go take a look at that. I was on Pragmatic Buddhism. And today we wanted to do something a little different. We wanted to have kind of more of a conversation um, about something that is really, uh, it's been up for me personally uh, as a practitioner and then also in my explorations for the show. And I was living in LA for about a year and we ended up having a lot of conversations around these topics. So I felt like it'd be cool for us to to talk about this issue of teachers and uh, the generational gap between uh, teachers and students. I know for me, all of my teachers were part of the boomer generation. So they we all sort of uh, hippies that went to Asia, came back after several years of training, and then they started teaching when they were like my age, in their 20s. Uh, and I know, Ken, your generation also learned from people that were at least a generation or two older. Uh, and, and not only that, but you also had to deal with oftentimes uh, cross-cultural conversation, like you're dealing with Tibetans, you know, who just come out of Tibet, you know, only a couple decades before, um, other teachers are dealing with, you know, in Southeast Asia and in, in South Asia and East Asia, all, all sorts of, uh, cross-cultural conversations, language barriers, uh, you know, all sorts of translation issues. You're a translator. So you've dealt with that really intimately. And I, I wonder if we could just talk about this generational difference because, uh, it seems like it's it's often um, felt pretty clearly by students. I know for me, I felt it. And how, how do we deal with this gap and uh, learn from previous generations, but also at the same time, um, you know, not have to take on all this stuff that's not maybe appropriate for our age, I guess, is sort of opening question.
1: That's kind of a big question, isn't it? And it's it's really good to be uh, talking with you again. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I miss our hikes in L.A.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: Let's – one place to start maybe to to look at it very broadly. Uh, There's a person here who uh, used to be part of a teacher's group that we had here in L.A. who uh, tended to reduce things to their uh, core essence – And one, uh, in in reference to the teacher-student relationship, uh, both the teacher and the student come into the relationship with the idea, with the assumption that the teacher knows something that the student doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that the teacher's job or responsibility is to impart something to uh, the student, and the student's responsibility is to absorb or assimilate or take that in in whatever way he or she can. Uh, so th- there is, if you wish, a uh, I wouldn't say an imbalance necessarily, but there's there, there's that uh, that that dynamic right right from the beginning, and. It is very, very fertile ground, as I think almost anybody who's been in a uh, teacher-student relationship uh, knows, uh, uh, for uh, old family projections uh, to operate. And also, because uh, particularly in the spiritual area, the accumulation of knowledge and understanding, etc., takes a long time. Uh, there is, as you referred to in your opening comments, this uh, generational gap, and uh, in such that the teacher and the student have, in a, in a reasonable sense, uh, grown up in different worlds. Yeah. So uh, there, there is the, the challenge of, of, uh, of communicating across uh, worlds. Now... I know that you've been reading um, philosophy as a way of life recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a passage in that which I really took to heart, particularly uh, where I am at in my own relationship with teaching these days. It's to the effect that um, real learning only takes place orally, hmm. in that uh, it is only in the interaction between the teacher and the student that real learning takes place. Why? Because the student is stepping out of their world and interacting with the teacher's world. So they're actually, in in interacting with the teacher, the student's understanding or the level of their understanding is open for question. (laughs) So the student's stepping into the unknown right there. Mm -hmm. And the teacher is also stepping into the unknown because the teacher now has to relate to whatever the student is presenting and can't rely on pat formulations or standard uh, stuff. So here, both actually meet in a new world, and that's where things are are alive. Now, he says it more succinctly and more eloquently than than that. Um, But that's uh, something I've certainly found that when when those when the when the student is asking a question out of their own experience, and i'm uh, I have to relate to whatever that student is presenting, and yes. I could draw on my experiences that but that's where things come alive. Right. and And I think that's where real uh, teaching takes place. now how how does that uh, fit with your experience?
0: So, when you're saying orally, that's not just like oral in terms of talking, but it's it's in terms of the actual conversations and the real like human interactions between teachers and students yes, okay, yes. okay, yes. gotcha yeah no that that makes a lot of sense to me that that's where real learning happens and i've I've certainly had that experience though I've had to go out of my way to 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 be able to have those interactions because it's a little challenging when like in my path going on retreats oftentimes there wasn't a lot of face to face time built into that model for for many reasons so i found it was kind of challenging but that those were the times that i actually learned the most in those kind of conversations when it when that feeling of like someone was just giving me their formula dropped away and it was actually like a real conversation about what was actually happening there, which, to be honest, was somewhat rare. With uh, when I go on retreat, more common when I'm just finding teachers offline, so to speak. <laughs> the kind of teach the dark sangha teachers.
1: <laughs> well, you raise, I think, a very interesting point. Uh, those kinds of conversations in Eastern cultures were relatively rare. One of the things that many. Uh, Asian teachers uh, found strange, thrilling, challenging, and unnerving is uh, the the way that Western students would ask questions. Hmm. And Eastern teachers, they will teach and they'll be grouped, but because of the structure of the society and the way the culture operated with, in terms of respect, uh many people would be very, very shy or uh, restrained about what questions they would ask or how they would ask them. Sometimes it was uh, e- even uh, linguistic, that is, that they didn't feel they had sufficient command of the high honorific to, in Tibetan to be able to word the question appropriately. <laughs>
0: mm. Uh
1: you know, in other words, they didn't know how to speak to a highly regarded teacher, um, which, from their cultural point of view, required a more formal Tibetan than just a colloquial. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. This wasn't... I'm speaking very broadly here. I mean, there were certainly conversations that, w- that would take place, and very deep conversations, obviously. But uh, for the most part, uh, and I know that my own teacher commented on this uh, many times that the, uh, the way that uh, Westerners would just ask questions and really want to understand, they found very interesting because they, they obviously wanted to know things and they found there was something very workable there. And it goes back to the, to, to the uh, question-answer uh, uh, format. And I, I know that exists in the Thai forest tradition. You didn't necessarily have individual interviews, but I, I've talked to people such as Achenamuro and others who said that uh, uh, you could approach Ajahn Chah or other teachers and just sit down and there would be a group of people talking with them and you just sat down and in time you would engage in conversation be in front of other people. But you could have very uh, substantial uh, conversations about different topics uh, pertaining to practice and so forth. And I I feel that that, uh, that conversation between teacher and student is really at the essence of the teacher-student relationship. Yes. Um, I mean, there are other aspects to the teacher-student relationship which we could discuss, but I'm not sure they're directly uh, relevant, such as the symbolic relationship, which is very important in the Tibetan tradition. Mm. Uh, but the in terms of actual instruction, it's almost, you can't really learn unless there is that back and forth uh, conversation.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: And then what you're saying that the structure of many retreats in the West, in my own retreats, uh, I made a point of having an individual interview with everybody every day in every retreat. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And people said they just found it helpful. And I found it helpful because I had a much better idea of... What students were actually experiencing or struggling with in their meditation practice and so that uh, when I was in the more formal teaching sessions I, I, I could be addressing stuff that I knew coming up from those interviews. Uh, And then you have the more formal interactions that you get in Rinzai Zen where you go to a retreat and you will have maybe four short interviews per day during the retreat Mm -hmm. with with, with the teacher. Now, they're very formally structured, but still it's that same interaction of where, you know, you have to give an answer to your koan and the teacher responds to that. And usually it's not much more than that. You know, he just rings the bell and you're out of there and you've got to work on another answer. (laughs) That uh you're still having that actual interaction, and I see that as really important
0: yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense and i I know just from talking to you that you know you you made it in sort of an intentional move to limit the number of people you could work with or you would work with intimately um in order to be able to have that uh contact, and then there are other models for teaching that where you know, people are teaching a much broader scope of people and they maybe only have intimate contact with a very small number. Um, I know that's, that's really common. I don't know how that worked in Asia. But I, I have seen, you know, lamas giving empowerments and there being thousands of people there receiving the empowerments. And I figure that he's probably not doing one-on-one interviews with everybody.
1: Yeah. But, you see, empowerments aren't retreats. Uh, yeah. Those, those are ceremonies. Now, uh, later on, I did evolve another format, which I found uh, works quite well and allows me to work with, uh, to do a retreat with a larger number of people, and that is uh, during the teaching sessions uh, to encourage questions, and when somebody brings up a question, I will actually interact with that person, so we're having a real conversation. And other people, what I found is that when one person asks a question, maybe five or 10 other people in the room will have a similar question so by working with that person individually the other people are learning something because they have a similar question and that seems to work quite well mm-hmm. but i do i do keep coming back to that actual interaction uh, mm. rather than just talking to or listening to
0: okay okay uh, good so 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 that's like a starting point i think for what's useful in terms of teacher student interactions and then I had a, a whole host of things that I've struggled with that I wanted to bring up uh that seem oh, <laughs> <laughs> that seemed to be ge- generational issues and I'd be curious both to hear because because a lot of the issues I've felt are with um with teachers they, they seem to be generational a lot of them uh, I'm not sure if all of them are, uh, some of them might be, you know, unique to me. Um, but I've, these are the ones that seem to have come up with some of my friends, uh, quite a few peers. I've also heard, you know, like it, th- these are the conversations we'd have behind closed doors where we'd be kind of like venting about teachers and sort of letting off steam.
1: Well, um, I, I, I'm thank you for including me in closed <laughs> door conversations.
0: <laughs> and I, I'd be curious to hear because I, I have a feeling that, you know it, it wasn't any different for my teachers their teachers and i've even heard you know i've heard stories that seem to hint at this so maybe this is a perennial issue but um i, I did want to bring them up because i feel like these are not the convers. these are conversations happening mostly behind closed doors not in a sort of open discourse so you know w- one of them and i think this one does get talked about some is is the the gap in technology in the world's that we grew up in in terms of technology, because I'm, I'm sort of born in the early 80s. And I, I remember growing up with computers and uh, kind of post-information age era in a certain way. Like I use, was using the internet, uh, even you know in middle school and high school. And I've just noticed there, there seems to be a very different mindset for people that have grown up using those digital technologies than the folks who didn't grow up using them. And I've been surprised at how how those mindsets come out—not just when you talk about technology, but when you talk about anything else—it seems to just be a, like a structural difference.
1: For the for the purpose of this conversation, can you give me a couple of examples? Yeah, of 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 what you, how you observe that difference?
0: Yes. So I, I think okay. So one of them, um, this comes out of retreat practice, is that the rule, uh, the kind of obvious rule when you come on retreat is you turn your phones off, you turn, you, you you disconnect from technology and that that disconnection is sort of a, a, a necessary first step to really dive deep in your practice. And, and also it, it comes across in terms of the kinds of conversations I've had in communities and practice communities around technology often center around how do we manage our technology so that it doesn't distract us like that's the core topic uh there's almost never i've never participated in a conversation where we say how do we how can we utilize technology to aid our practice um so it's like the relationship to technology whenever it comes up is sort of how do we uh, mitigate the damage this is going to cause us (laughs) versus you know uh maybe there's some usefulness in this stuff that we Uh, could experiment with
1: so i'm going to here's where I'd like to go with this. I think, okay. it's very inter- I think this is very interesting. I-, I want to introduce uh, – I-, I want to talk about specific technologies. So I'm going to name a few, and you can throw in a few too. Yeah, okay. cool. I want to talk about books. That's one technology. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about phones and not you know, just, just phones in general, not just cell phones yeah. as another technology and then we, then we can talk about cell phones and computers and the uh, etc. um anything else you want to throw in there
0: Yeah, I I put in there just 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 the internet in general as a kind of technology even okay. though it, you know you can access it using some of those things you okay. mentioned.
1: Okay, well let's start with books. Uh now when I was in the uh, on a three-year retreat, which is like, you know, super retreat if you wish. Mm-hmm. Uh Rinpoche, uh, my teacher, actively uh, discouraged us from reading too much. Now we had to read a tremendous amount in order to learn the various practices. But he would say, "Don't read more than you need to learn the practices," because he regarded reading as a distraction. <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. Uh, I've seen. And, I've seen that one too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and. In the context of uh, certain practices, such as uh, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, then the activity of reading does something with your eyes, which actually uh, encourages or, or reinforces a conceptual uh, activity in the in the mind. And so, mm. actually, getting away completely from reading, let alone internet and anything like that, creates conditions in uh, which. Facilitate a a deepening of experience. So so that's one technology. Secondly, uh, if we take things like uh, phones and so forth, they allow conversations to take place uh, with people at a distance. Yep. Uh, They collapse distance and uh, quite magically. Again, and I'm, I'm only talking about the retreat situation. The the purpose of the retreat situation, at least the way that I was trained, and the way that I've uh, thought about it and always approached it, is to eliminate choice and eliminate distraction. Mm-hmm. There isn't any bias against any particular technology. It is, however, you can eliminate choice and eliminate distraction, so that people who are practicing can go deeply into their own experience
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I, I from my point of view there isn't any bias against uh, technology there uh, it, 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 there's a very specific aim now I, you remind me of a professor that I knew at UCLA who used to take uh, he was a sociology professor and he would take his students down to Deer Park uh, Thich Nhat Hanh Center in San Diego where they had to check their cell phones and their pagers and everything like that. And and for many of these uh, kids, these are people in their late teens, early 20s, uh, They this was the first time they had ever unplugged from the internet.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So I, I think that in terms of adjustment from an environment in which you can engage people at will in any number of ways to an environment in which all forms of distraction and choice are being eliminated. That's probably a big adjustment.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it, I mean, you're bringing up something that's helpful to, to make a distinction between maybe retreat practice and just a non-retreat practice. Because uh, the attitude I've seen toward technology is in both contexts. And it's, I, I sort of, in some ways, I can see exactly what you're saying, eliminating choice, eliminating distraction. I mean, if you look at language as a technology, uh Yes. then I mean in the retreats I've been on most of them are silent so they're even eliminating that use of technology of, of talking out loud
1: yes I hadn't viewed language as a technology but you, you certainly could and when you don't talk uh, I mean, uh, you, you have to deal with your own experience in a fundamentally different way because a lot of the times when we talk we're just using it to dissipate internal tensions of in one form or another Hmm. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons why on uh, some of my retreats I do uh, en- uh, encourage or require silence, because I want people to develop a different relationship with their internal material, which only happens by observing silence. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think that's
1: a really good point you bring up.
0: Mm. Okay, cool. So So... So on the retreat environment, it's designed and it seems like in almost all the traditions to eliminate choice and eliminate distractions so people can kind of have a new relationship with their own internal workings. And then, okay, and then here's maybe where the other context comes up is when you leave that environment and you take whatever insights are gleaned from that environment, you know, you spent several years in that kind of environment then how does that play out um, and how do you then practice differently and then does technology have a use in, in, in that context and that's where it's a little that's where there's maybe more of a gap because I can kind of I can see that point about retreats and I can even get behind that and I like disconnecting from the internet actually when I go on retreat it's it's kind of nice.
1: It's a break isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah it's really nice.
1: Yeah. Well let me, give, let me give you my introduction to technology. Okay. Uh, In the second three-year retreat, uh, Kalaram Pache asked me to translate his autobiography. Many, many people—it was—he'd written this in Tibetan. Uh, Many people in the West had uh, asked him to um, to for something about his his life um and he'd asked a couple of other people and it had never come to about so uh, I took I took this on um, took responsibility for translating and, and publishing it and this is the early 80s um, 84 I would say uh, personal computers were not quite on were just coming in uh, but very few people had them. Mm. I ended up working on a word processor connected with a university. I managed to get some time on the university computer. Mm. Uh, but the word processor was not like Microsoft Word or uh mm pages or whatever we have mm-hmm. these days you had to actually it's more like html where you actually had to insert the instructions like you know th- i want this piece of text in bold and this piece of, in italics etc and then you had to compile it and things like that and we're talking about you, you weren't
0: imagery. using punch cards were you on that
1: no no <laughs> I, I, for, punch cards was when i was at university myself okay that was, was 20 years earlier than that okay <laughs> Okay. No, this wasn't punch cards, but this was where you had to insert the commands and then compile it and see what it actually looked like. Okay. So I had to learn the scripting language. And uh, now, as a translator, I was astonished because once I got, once I figured out how this worked, it changed completely how I could translate. Uh Because initially, uh, originally, you, you'd translate, and then you'd have to type it up or write it out, and then you start doing drafts, and you could only do a certain number of revisions before it was a complete mess, and then you had to type it up again. And so this constantly having to type it up meant that in any translation, you'd only do two or three revisions because you just got tired of typing the whole thing up again. With this word processor, I could do infinite number of revisions. right. So the technology immediately made it much more possible for me to refine my translations to a much greater extent than I ever would before. I thought this was wonderful. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I glommed onto the technology, and uh, when Kala Rinpoche started the a translation projects in '87, I was the person who introduced uh, computers to that translation project. I brought over a small Toshiba portable that someone had given me here and that became the computer for the translation project mm. because they very quickly realized that this made uh, translation so much easier Right now of course we wouldn't even think of doing it any other way but that's so my own experience with technology is that it's a great facilitator and it, it is and, but one of the things that we overlook in that in you can look at technology as something that enhances a particular ability. right. But any time we enhance a particular ability, we lose our relationship with other abilities. so 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 can you give an example of that? Well, when you're plugged into the internet all the time, you lose your relationship with being able to be alone and self um, self-sufficient right okay that's that's just one example if you take car as a technology uh, the automobile yeah and because you can go anywhere and many people do you lose your relationship with walking places mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean you, you you were here in LA how often times did you walk from A to B? <laughs> Not that often. (laughs) Compared to Boulder or New York, where you walk from A to B all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because And those cities are designed with that in mind more.
1: Yeah. So this is a very broad statement about technology. Yes. As it enhances a particular ability, it reduces your relationship with other uh, abilities. And and this is something that comes from from McLuhan back in the 60s and talking about uh, radio and television and so forth. And so we're often blind – to that effect, uh, because we, we're we're so and seduced or uh, entranced by the, by the enhancement, and and we, we don't pay attention to how our relationship with the world is being shaped by the technology that we're using.